0: Here's how sure Slate's Mark Joseph Stern was that President Biden was about to nominate Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court. He only prepared a single article to go out when this nomination got formally announced. And it was a profile of Judge Jackson.
1: It always felt to me like it was going to be Katanji from day one. Good afternoon.
0: You could feel that inevitability as Biden introduced Judge Jackson to the press last week the president listed off the kinds of sterling credentials we've all come to expect at the court. An Ivy League education, a list of prestigious clerkships. Biden almost made it seem like it was an afterthought that Judge Jackson would be the first Black woman to serve as a justice. It's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist, one of the nation's most. The main thing, thing that struck me, me when I watched was how different this nomination announcement was from what we saw last time with Amy Coney Barrett. Because with that announcement, her whole family came out with her, little kids, and they just kept talking about how she was a mom. It was just so different what the president wanted us to focus on when it came to Katanchi Brown Jackson.
1: There was a real study in contrasts um, between this announcement and all three under Trump.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. President. I am truly humbled
1: by the... She talked a lot about faith.
0: I must begin these very brief remarks by thanking God for delivering me to this point in my professional journey. My life has been blessed beyond measure, and I do know that one can only come this far by faith.
1: I think it's notable that with Trump and and Barrett, um, he went on and on about how she was a woman and she was a mother, a mother of young kids, of all seven young kids. And ironically, I think, um, this ceremony was less about Katanji Brown Jackson's identity than uh, Amy Coney Barrett's was. The only nod to identity,
0: like hard nod to identity, was when Judge Jackson ended by noting that she shares a birthday with the first Black female federal judge, Constance Baker Motley. We were born exactly 49 years to the day apart. Today, I proudly stand on Judge Motley's shoulders sharing not only her birthday, but also her steadfast and courageous commitment to equal justice under law. Were you surprised when she did that?
1: I was delighted because this is a parallel that Dahlia Lithwick and I have been drawing since the beginning of this whole process, Um, in part because the complaints about Uh, The nomination of Constance Baker Motley are chillingly similar, if not identical, to the complaints about uh, Ketanji Brown Jackson.
0: What were the complaints about Constance Baker Motley?
1: She, she was unqualified. She was inexperienced. She didn't have the right temperament. She was chosen because of her identity. By the way, she had argued 10 cases before the Supreme Court and won almost all of them and defended clients in various courts in the Jim Crow South, uh, a great threat to her life. So it was nonsense then, just as it's nonsense now. With that reference to Constance Baker Motley, maybe Judge Jackson was kind of gesturing toward that whole narrative and trying to kind of bust it wide open. Today on the show, Judge
0: Katanji Brown Jackson steps into the limelight. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next? Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Can we tell the Ketanji Brown Jackson story? Like who she is and how she got where she is now. Like she's from
1: Miami, right? Yes. So she is a Florida, D.C. person, which obviously touches my heart because I am also a Florida, (laughs) D.C. person, although we sort of took reverse paths. So she was born in D.C. and then uh, moved to Florida. And both of her parents were public school teachers. She went to public school uh, in Miami, and her dad then went to law school to become a lawyer within the Florida public school system. Um, And she has spoken about watching him learn the law and gain expertise here and kind of. developing this idea that maybe she should follow in his footsteps.
0: Yeah, she said he was was her first role model as a lawyer,
1: basically. That's right, which is beautiful. I mean, so touching, right? Like, how can you say no to that?
0: Well, it seems like from the very beginning, she was kind of a star. Like, she was running student government
1: at her schools
0: since, like, middle school.
1: Right. And she said in her yearbook in high school that she had ambitions to get a judicial appointment, which is awesome and also something that uh, Justice Elena Kagan said, by the way, but not like a common high school, like, I'm going to get a judicial appointment. She was ambitious. And I think she decided that, you know, she wanted to follow in a path like her father, but do more public-facing work. And again, he was working for the school system. But if you look at how she kind of moved forward through Harvard and then Harvard Law, um, she did uh, end up going into big law. But she didn't take the track that you would necessarily expect for someone who's just going to do white shoe evil corporate law for their entire lives. Like she took a year off in between college and law school to be a journalist, which obviously appeals a lot to me (laughs) uh, and our kind. Um, And I I think she's just a little idiosyncratic and her career has zigged and zagged in really fascinating ways that suggests a very able and nimble mind and a real appetite for adventure, for um, new intellectual experiences, and for trying to figure out the best way to make an impact on the world.
0: Yeah, I mean, you talk about that zigging and zagging. One part of Judge Jackson's biography that I want to hone in on if we can is that she served as a public defender. But she did that after she'd done a whole bunch of other things that usually take you out of the public defender realm as a lawyer. Like she'd been a clerk on the Supreme Court, she'd served as a lawyer on the Federal Sentencing Commission, and then she kind of took this step I guess, to the side and said, hey, I want to dig in and and do this work. How much do we know about
1: why? She has not spoken a ton um, about the ideological motivations for that career switch, but she has spoken about the personal side of it um, very candidly. And what she said was basically, I was a relatively young mother in big law. Um, I didn't love the work. And I felt like I had no work-life balance. Um, and the 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 balance between having to deal with your kids at home, trying to be a good parent, um, trying to be a good spouse, and also billing all of these hours and handling all of these high-power clients, it just didn't work for her. Um, and I think that's true of a lot of people, but very few of them say it out loud, even fewer who have political or judicial ambitions. So part of it may have been that she decided, I want to take some time to do a job that gives me more uh, hours with my family and also gives me... Uh, sort of 100% pro bono style work, because we know she was doing pro bono work at the firms, but, you know, that's always stuff you're doing on the side. Your main job is always going to be boring mergers and acquisitions and whatever. Um, So it seems like from from what we can glean, she's decided, I'm going to do a job that aligns with my values, both my personal values and my professional values.
0: In 2010, President Obama nominated Judge Jackson to be a vice chair at the United States Sentencing Commission where she would craft the guidelines judges use when they send defendants to prison. So her main uh,
1: initiative was to help to reduce the sentences for drug crimes, um, including the crack cocaine disparity, where people uh, found with crack had much higher sentences than people found with cocaine, which was a relic of the racist law and order days of the 80s and 90s.
0: And disproportionately affected Black people.
1: Yes, outrageously disproportionately affected people of color um, and also to lower um, the sentences for a, a pretty broad range of drug crimes, um, particularly nonviolent drug crimes, including possession and alleged intent to distribute.
0: And interestingly, this this allowed her to find some common ground with relatively
1: conservative people, right? Yes, absolutely. So um, when she served in 2010, um, it was the beginning of what in retrospect was clearly a golden age of bipartisan consensus on criminal justice reform, a golden age that has since come to a rather catastrophic close. Um, But from 2009, 2010 to about 2018, 2019, Republicans and Democrats really did work across the aisle to reduce extreme sentences, especially for drug crimes. Um, And that's how Donald Trump. Trump ended up signing the First Step Act, which is the most important federal sentencing reform in at least a generation. Um, And so when she was on this commission, she was able to work with the Republican commissioners to sort of establish some common sense principles. And so she was very effective in these bipartisan reforms that, again, in retrospect, were kind of a high point of the Obama era and not the kind of thing I think Republicans and Democrats are going to agree on in the future.
0: One thing I've noticed is that Judge Jackson, when you look back at the last 20 years of her career, she's been so careful about a lot of different things, but especially when it comes to race. Like, I I read this one story that she ran to be on Harvard's Board of Overseers in 2016, and everyone who was running alongside her came out saying they were in favor of the college's affirmative action program, but she didn't. And she said, you know, as a judge, I cannot weigh in here. And I just thought, like, what foresight? Like, she's already kind of protecting herself from criticism she knows might come.
1: I totally agree. Uh, and I think that this is a big difference between your average Democratic and Republican judicial nominee or prospective judicial nominee. Um, If you look at the people Donald Trump picked, not just for the Supreme Court, but also for the lower courts, they went out there and, like, blogged their feelings. Um, They were posting about affirmative action and how much they hated on, like, MySpace um, and did not really shy away from that. Whereas with Democratic nominees, if you have any desire to be a judge in the future and you want to get appointed by a Democratic president, you just can't say that stuff out loud. Maybe the rules are changing a little bit under Biden, um, but for the most part, you've got to keep it close to the chest. And it seems to me that because she began her career in public service so young, she figured out how to kind of keep her mouth shut uh, whenever speaking out could get her in trouble and how to kind of use her public service as a shield whenever anyone asked her for comment on something that could be controversial.
0: Yeah. I mean, at one point, I was looking back over a previous testimony she'd given for previous confirmation battles. And she was asked directly by Senator Tom Tillis, are you a bold progressive champion? If yes, please (laughs) explain. And her answer (laughs) was no, first of all. And she just said, I've never called myself or anyone else a bold progressive
1: champion, nor do I have a clear
0: understanding of the meaning of that phrase.
1: The reason she was asked that is because groups like Demand Justice and Alliance for Justice and these liberal judicial nomination groups, they have framed her as a progressive champion. But when asked about it, she's like, "Uh uh, uh I don't know anything about those people. Like, they are not coming to my dinner parties. They are not at my Sunday brunches. Like, they, they do not speak for me. And
0: Mariah Carey meme, just I don't know her. <laughs>
1: yeah, I don't know her. And that takes a lot of confidence, again. And, and it's um, it's a little bit ruthless, but everybody knows you got to be ruthless if you want to get this kind of gig.
0: Do you think she is a bold progressive champion?
1: Yes, I do.
0: I wonder how you'd define that versus maybe it's just because you'd define it differently than Tom Tillis would.
1: You know, I would define a bold progressive champion as a judge who does not pretend like um, everyone's unique experiences and life paths Influence their own views, um, and that the United States' own history um, as a country founded on the paradox of liberty and slavery, with a, a horrific history of Jim Crow that reaches into the lifetimes of many people living today, including her own parents, that you can't set all of that aside. And that when you are looking at a law or a constitutional provision, something like equal protection, that you can take into account the fact that we fought a war over the meaning of equality, and that the people who wrote these laws and and these amendments did not Pretend like they could foresee every single application, and that the hubris required to uh, say that you alone know what the meaning of this uh, this text was at the time it was ratified um, that that that's just kind of arrogance, and that a, a judge needs to think about how her decisions are going to impact the country and um, impact future generations and future decisions, and just take a holistic and humane view of the job of saying what the law is.
0: After the break, the political fight to come. Even though it seemed obvious to Mark Joseph Stern that Ketanji Brown Jackson would be nominated to the Supreme Court, others, they were not so sure. Last week, Representative Jim Clyburn of South Carolina, along with Senators Joe Manchin and Lindsey Graham, came out in favor of another option, Michelle Childs, a judge from South Carolina.
1: I think that Joe Manchin, Jim Clyburn, Lindsey Graham, they all felt like, let's let's just put this out there that we want childs, that childs would be our number one pick. Let's try to speak it into existence. Yes, exactly. Let's manifest it. Let's make Michelle (laughs) Childs happen. Um, But I don't think that they really seriously thought the White House was going to bite. And and one indicator of that is that when Jim Clyburn said something on TV that kind of made it sound like an ultimatum, he then walked that back pretty quickly and very publicly. Um, And that seemed to me like the big tell. Like, Clyburn was going to push for her, but Clyburn was not going to push Joe Biden so hard that if he didn't pick... Childs that it was going to blow up in his face pretty much as
0: soon as the judge jackson nomination came out senators like lindsey graham were beating the drum that she was a radical left nominee and i get the sense that you were not surprised by that but i guess i was given everything we've said about how careful judge jackson has been at managing her reputation for all these
1: years I think that we've reached a stage where almost anyone who gets nominated to the Supreme Court by a Democratic president is going to be smeared as a radical leftist by a huge chunk of the Republican caucus. Um, This is their chief line of attack. And we saw this throughout both the Obama and the Trump years where the GOP party line was basically... Only we appoint legitimate judges. You know, we appoint real independent jurists who apply the Constitution and the law is written. Democrats appoint these lawless partisans in robes who go out there and impose their own views on the people, whether they like it or not. And so it was inevitable that whoever Biden named, even if it was Childs, frankly, um, that most Republican senators were going to vote against her and were going to accuse her of being like a, a closet Leninist or something. Um, And that's just how the politics of judicial nominations goes in 2022.
0: You and Dahlia Lithwick wrote a really great piece after Judge Jackson was nominated, basically decrying the whole process she's about to be forced to go through. And you you put it like this, which I thought was just really well written. You said in the coming weeks, throughout the confirmation process, The nominee will be required to present herself as a human whiteboard, which is of course not possible, even though Judge Jackson has made herself into as much of a human whiteboard as humanly possible, it seems to me. And I just, (laughs) it seems crazy to me that that's the standard we're applying. Like, you must leave all... Humanity at the door in order to wear this robe and enter
1: this court. <laughs> well, it's the whole thing is a farce, right? And I think we should just acknowledge that off the top. Like, um, we pretend as though two or three days of uh, answering or dodging questions before this relatively small Senate committee uh, can can help this chamber decide whether you deserve a lifetime appointment with essentially zero checks and balances if you break the rules because they're almost are no rules, Um, it's ridiculous. And the the farce of it encourages nominees to be as much of a human whiteboard as possible, as we said. It discourages any real flashes of personality or, uh, you know, controversial views or even distinctive ideological or jurisprudential approaches to anything. And I think Justice Sotomayor is my favorite example of this, because if you go back and watch those hearings, I mean, she sounds like a robot. It's almost like someone put a cyborg in that seat because she's almost like speaking in monotone. She says nothing particularly interesting or notable throughout the entire hearing. And then she gets confirmed with more than 60 votes. Um, And so clearly you are rewarded for being as bland and insipid as possible um, because you have to pretend like you don't have bias. But then once you get that commission, once you're sitting on the Supreme Court and you're confirmed, you can do whatever you want. You can be Clarence Thomas and have a wife who is uh, directly involved in these political clashes that are coming before your court, who is working with the parties who are appearing before you, asking you to rule in their favor. Um, And so I think it's just especially perverse that you have to pretend to be bland right up until the moment that you get over the hump. And then once you do, you can do literally anything you want, because we have decided as a nation to impose zero checks on anything a justice does. They get every year of their life left to just be political or partisan or ideological or biased as much as they want, and there's nothing any of us can do to stop them.
0: Yeah. I mean, you really urged readers to compare Clarence Thomas to Judge Jackson and just think about what if she was out there with the same kinds of conflicts of interest and what it would mean for her. And it's interesting because— there's not much out there about Judge Jackson that reveals flashes of personality, but there is one little nugget of a story about her and Clarence Thomas, about how she sat across from him and just thought, "I don't understand you at all because you sound like my parents, but you're <laughs> you're completely twisting like what their understanding of how the world should work, how that should go. And I thought that was so interesting that like one of the few little pieces of information we have is her basically saying this other person who she may now be serving with if she's confirmed, it's setting her up to kind of go head to head with him a little bit.
1: I think that if those two go head to head, it will be A fabulous confrontation for the court and the country, because for decades, the only voice of black America, putting that in quotes, has been Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. And he really does represent only a very small minority of Black Americans in his views. Um, Ketanji Brown Jackson undoubtedly represents a much larger chunk of America's African American community than Clarence Thomas. Um, And yet we have been denied that voice on SCOTUS for so very long. And you know she will have an opportunity now to work with him. I bet their relationship will be very cordial. I'm sure they will get along, but in their opinions, they may well go toe-to-toe. And that will be uh, a long-awaited confrontation that, again, I think will be very satisfying and salutary to a lot of people.
0: Mark Joseph Stern, thank you so much for making the time.
1: Always a pleasure, Mary, thanks.
0: Mark Joseph Stern is a senior writer for Slate. Congrats on the promotion, Mark. He covers the law and the courts. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Daniel Hewitt, Mary Wilson, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Alicia Montgomery, and I'm Mary Harris. You can go find me on Twitter, I'm at Mary's Desk. In the meantime, thanks for listening. I will catch you back in this feed tomorrow.
1: Plus.